Welcome to Dialogue Minnesota, conversations about the issues that matter to you. I'm Jim Dubois. This past week, the U.S. Supreme Court wrapped up its term and delivered several significant decisions. Among them was a ruling that federal courts cannot intervene in gerrymandering disputes, and another that prevents the Trump administration from including a question regarding citizenship on the 2020 census. Today on Dialogue Minnesota, a look at some of the major Supreme Court decisions this past term and how the ideological leanings of the justices can influence their rulings. Timothy Johnson is the Moore's Alumni Distinguished Professor of Political Science and Law at the University of Minnesota. Professor Johnson, welcome back to Dialogue Minnesota. Thanks for having me, Jim. Did the founders have concerns about the potential politicalization of the judicial system? You know, I'm not sure that the founders had concerns about politicalization of the judicial system, but they knew that it would be political. Um, and you can think of two examples from early on, right after the founding. Um, one was the midnight appointments of President John Adams when he lost the election uh, to Thomas Jefferson in 1800. It was very clear that the Federalists were going to be out because not only had they lost the White House, they lost Congress as well. And so the midnight appointments were a move by the Adams administration to guarantee that the Federalists, which was the main party at the time, would still have some control on federal government. And so in some sense, there was not a court packing, if you will, but an increase in the number of appointees of the Federalist Party to the bench. The other is that it was very clear that the strongest of our Supreme Court chief justices um, and that would be John Marshall, was going to be very, very political. And he was very political during his tenure on the bench, taking on President Jefferson early on in the famous case Marbury versus Madison, and making some other major rulings that increased federal power to a great extent. So I guess my answer is not that there was a concern, but I think that the founders knew that there would be a politicization of the judiciary. During which points in the country's history has the Supreme Court been the most ideologically divided? Yeah, I would say that there are probably five eras where the court was, and the federal courts more generally, were most politically divided. The first was um, the one that, that I talked about already, and that would be the Marshall Court, and, and really the fight between the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists early on. Um, the second would be the early 20th century in the Lochner era, where we were sort of in the midst of the Industrial Revolution, and the ideological division at that time was really between those justices and other judges in the federal court system who were very pro-business and those who were pro-regulation. Then you moved to the New Deal era, which really was the pinnacle or quintessential example of that Lochner era where there was the fight between those who believed in regulation and those who really wanted free markets. And so you really had a big battle that, in fact, President Roosevelt ended up winning at the end of the New Deal era. You then, of course, had the Warren Court era in the mid to late 1960s, where the Warren Court expanded the rights of common citizens to a large extent, mostly in the area of criminal rights law, but also in the area of equal protection. Really strong political divide there, although the court was, by and large, much more ideologically homogenous during that era. And then you get our most recent era. And by most recent, I would say the last 
quarter century, and that would be the Rehnquist court era by the mid-'90s that had gotten incredibly conservative but still had a strong liberal wing on the bench. And then now under Chief Justice Roberts, where you have five pretty strong conservatives again, as well as four pretty strong liberals. So those five eras, I think, are probably the most ideologically divided eras on the U.S. Supreme Court. When did the labels liberal and conservative come into use to describe the SCOTUS justices? When I saw this question being asked, Jim, I tried to do a little research. I reached out to some of my colleagues, and we couldn't pinpoint an exact time, but we suspect that sort of between the Lochner era and the end of the New Deal era is where you really started seeing the idea of liberals versus conservatives on the bench. Although, as I said just a couple of minutes ago, liberal and conservative meant something different during that era because it was really a pro-business versus pro-regulation argument that was going on. When you really saw the idea of liberal and conservative come to fruition, it was in fact the confluence of the legal community with political scientists. And a book was written by a political scientist in the United States in 1948, C. Herman Pritchett. He wrote a book called The Roosevelt Court. And it was in that book where you can look and see him talking specifically about liberal justices, conservative justices, and a liberal versus conservative opinions. So sort of Early to mid-20th century, and then by the time you get to the post-World War II era, you really start seeing the liberal and conservative being used as labels for Supreme Court justices. We're talking with Timothy Johnson. He's the Moore's alumni distinguished professor of political science and law at the University of Minnesota. Going back to the 1930s, the Great Depression, and the first term of President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the president was finding that the Supreme Court was overturning some of his key New Deal programs. What exactly was Franklin Roosevelt's so-called court-packing scheme? Yeah, it's interesting because I talk about the court-packing plan, and sometimes it takes me almost two 75-minute lectures to talk about the court-packing plan. But in a nutshell, you are spot on, Jim, and that is that there was a four-person conservative block on the U.S. Supreme Court known affectionately, I, I suppose, in some circles as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And they had a fifth vote, a justice by the name of Justice Owen Roberts, who was siding with them almost all of the time in striking down the president's New Deal legislation. And after his landslide victory in 1936, President Roosevelt felt very emboldened, and he said, look, I'm going to take on the courts because we need to be able to fix our economy, and the court is stopping us from doing so. And so he proposed, among other reforms, a plan, as you said, known as the court packing plan. And at its crux, that plan called for the ability of the president to nominate a new justice to the Supreme Court for every current justice who was 70 years old with 10 years of service. What that would have done for President Roosevelt was at the time he was losing every case by a five to four vote. That would have allowed him six new appointees. The court would have gone up to 15 members. And at that point, the notion would have been that he would have won all of his New Deal cases by votes of 10 to 5. Luckily, in a case called West Coast Hotel versus Parrish in 1937, Justice Roberts flipped his vote and voted with the liberal bloc, if you will, upholding 
a piece of New Deal legislation, and that is known as the switch in time that saved nine, because Roosevelt no longer had an argument with the court after West Coast Hotel. The court continued to uphold his policies, and the court packing plan went away. As one side note, it was not a very popular plan. The Democrats controlled Congress at the time, both houses, and the Democrats in both houses were up in arms about this particular proposal, thinking that it would do damage. And there are great political cartoons that your listeners can Google about the court packing plan, just savaging the president on an almost daily basis for trying to take over the court system in that way. In the 1950s, Justice Earl Warren was nominated by President Dwight Eisenhower, but despite being a Republican president's nominee, as Chief Justice, his court delivered many landmark, uh, what we would call liberal decisions. How did Warren's ideology evolve during his tenure on the court? So Chief Justice Warren did begin as a moderate conservative on the bench. Of course, he was the former Republican governor of California, and He was known as a politician, if you will. And in fact, at the end of President Eisenhower's tenure as president of the United States, he was asked if he had made any mistakes during his time in office. And he said that he could only think of two, and both were on the Supreme Court. One of them was his nominee of Chief Justice Earl Warren, and the other was his nomination of Associate Justice William Brennan. And to go back to Warren for a second to answer your question, He did begin as a moderate conservative, and you can see some of his early decisions in the early to mid to late 1950s, relatively conservative decisions. But as the liberal bloc grew and as the court became more emboldened and he became more emboldened and Congress passed the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act of the mid-1960s, he evolved into being one of the most liberal justices uh, in the history of the U.S. Supreme Court. But he, as I want to make clear, did not start out that way. He started out moderately conservative and then became liberal over time. What does the research tell us about the ideological leadings of individual Supreme Court justices and how they may change over time? Sure. So the data are actually pretty clear that most justices stay pretty tried and true to the ideology that they bring with them when they are nominated and confirmed at the U.S. Supreme Court. But there are some pretty notable examples of justices who changed over time. The two most prominent examples are Harry Blackman, who was a Nixon appointee and was pretty conservative when he joined the bench in 1970. And he evolved to be one of the court's most, if not the number one most liberal justice by the time he left the bench in 1994. And in contrast would be President Kennedy's appointment of Justice Byron White to the bench in the early 1960s, and one would assume that a Kennedy appointee would be relatively liberal. And it turns out that throughout his career, Justice White drifted, and that's the the political science terminology, drifted to the right. So while, in fact, most justices don't exhibit a large amount of ideological drift, there are some who showed much more drift. And as I said, the two best examples are Blackman and White. We're recording this on Thursday, the 27th of June. The Supreme Court delivered a couple of major decisions today, the first of which having to deal with legislative gerrymandering. Tell us about that decision. Sure. So in this case, it emanates out of both Maryland and North Carolina. The U.S. Supreme Court, for all intents and purposes, punted on the question, if you will. Chief Justice Roberts, in his opinion, said that, in fact, these cases, that is cases of partisan gerrymandering, do not overcome the threshold question 
that these are political issues that should be dealt with by our elected branches and not by the court. And the chief specifically said that, in fact, there are not and have never been provided to any federal judge, uh, including the Supreme Court justices, judicially discoverable standards to make decisions about whether or not partisan gerrymandering has gone too far. And so the court never reached the actual question of whether or not gerrymandering is constitutional. All the court said in this case was, we cannot decide the case. But that has a significant policy effect. And that policy effect is that it allows the partisan gerrymandering that has gone on over the past half century and and much more than that, all the way back to our founding, to remain happening within any state where the legislature decides that it wants to push out or gain additional power over the other party. A second ruling that came down today had to do with a citizenship question that the Trump administration wanted put on the 2020 census. What did the court rule in this case? Sure. So in this case, the court said, we are going to, and again, this was the second opinion that was written by Chief Justice Roberts, He said that we are going to send this case back to the lower court and that, in fact, the Commerce Department absolutely may put a citizenship question on the census, but it has to provide a good reason for doing so and that the court did not feel that that particular reason had been provided. And so the decision reads as though it's unanimous, but the court is really broken up on the decision. There are many partial dissents and partial concurrences. But the bottom line is that the case is being sent back to the district court. And this will be really interesting because it was not until after the oral argument that these infamous emails came out where the census question was, for all intents and purposes from those emails uh, internal to the Trump administration suggested that there were really nefarious reasons for putting the citizenship question on the census. So it'll be interesting to see how the district courts deal with that issue and then what will happen if there are appeals back to the Supreme Court. As a practical matter, sending this case back to the lower court suggests that the highest probability is that The citizenship question will not be on the census in 2020 because, in fact, the census form probably will not be able to be printed in time, but it is still possible that it could appear if the courts can move quickly enough. Chief Justice John Roberts has been adamant that he does not want the court to be seen as partisan. Has the court taken any measures to show it is indeed nonpartisan, or do the justices mainly split along partisan lines? So I will say that if you were able to sit the chief justice down right now instead of talking to me, and he was in turn willing to answer your questions, he would make the argument that both of his opinions issued today were meant to make it clear that the court wants to keep its hands off of partisan issues. It doesn't want to decide partisan gerrymandering, and it certainly did not want to decide on whether the citizenship question should be added to the census until there is very clear evidence that there is a good reason for doing so. And so these are not the first two times that the chief has issued rulings that have tried to keep partisanship out of the court. Now, in terms of the split along partisan lines, of course, we know that the justices decide 5-4 decisions. And in fact, it decides a fair number of 5-4 decisions. But most of those hardcore splits, as opposed to uh, seven to two or eight to one or a unanimous decision, 
don't happen all that often per term, right? So, for instance, now in this current term, there have been before the cases today, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, I believe, five, four decisions. And while the majority of those, five of those decisions were cut straight down partisan or ideological lines, if you will. There were two decisions where Justices Ginsburg and Breyer and Sotomayor and Kagan signed a decision with Justice Gorsuch. And there has been one opinion where the five-person majority has been some combination of the liberals and conservatives. Of course, going back in time, we certainly do see straight partisan or ideological splits in these 5-4 decisions, but they don't always happen that way. Well, there have been a number of other notable decisions in this term of the Supreme Court. Liberal Justices Elena Kagan and Ruth Bader Ginsburg joined the conservative majority, and Chief Justice John Roberts joined two liberals on a decision that held that the government cannot ban trademarks with immoral or scandalous content. Is the First Amendment uh, or issues related to the First Amendment one area where the justices might be a bit less predictable in terms of how they might rule based upon their perceived ideologies? I think that's absolutely right. And, and you can, in fact, go all the way back to 1989, where the court upheld the right of citizens to burn the American flag. And that majority opinion was written by perhaps the most liberal justice in the court's history, Justice William Brennan, but his opinion was signed by perhaps the most conservative justice in the court's history, Justice Antonin Scalia. And so, yes, free speech cases are much more difficult to pinpoint along ideological lines, and justices have proven that because there has been much more crossing of those lines within free speech cases, and this is just the most recent example of that line crossing, if you will. Let's talk about the implications of this First Amendment case. There have been concerns over a rise in white supremacy and hate crimes in this country. Will the ruling in this case allow for more racist and hateful trademarks to appear? I think that it's possible that there will be more racist and hateful trademarks. The court has been very clear on hate crimes, that in fact those crimes can be punished as hate crimes. Um, depending on the particular circumstances of the case and depending on how the free speech clause of the First Amendment is implicated. But the point of this decision is really going all the way back to famous Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, who says, if in fact we believe in free speech, you have to believe in the marketplace of ideas and every type of idea needs to be out there, no matter how much it might make you unhappy or how much you might dislike that speech. So yes, you might see more trademarks that are hateful or racist, you will also see lawsuits trying to stop those. And it will be very interesting to see going forward how lower courts, as well as the U.S. Supreme Court, deal with those particular appeals. The newest member of the court, Justice Brett Kavanaugh, sided with the court's liberals on a case striking down the conviction of a death row inmate. Does this case and others this term give us a sense of how Justice Kavanaugh may rule in future cases? I think that the one place that that this gives a clue to is that Justice Kavanaugh seems as though he will be more liberal in criminal rights cases, very similar to his conservative predecessor on the court, Justice Antonin Scalia, who, if you looked for Justice Scalia to be liberal in an area, it was most likely going to be in freedom of speech cases. Kavanaugh acted like that and wrote very similar to how Scalia wrote in these cases in the Flowers decision. And I think the issue here is one of Justices Kavanaugh and Scalia being originalists, and they 
very much believe in the Fourth Amendment being a very strong protection because that was how it was written by the founders for the criminally accused. And so I think if you're going to pinpoint a place where Justice Kavanaugh will continue to be slightly more liberal than in other decisions, it will be in those criminal rights cases. Kavanaugh replaced Anthony Kennedy off in the court's deciding swing vote. Is there a justice on the current court that has filled Kennedy's role as a moderate? So I think that the replacement will ultimately be the chief because he is the fifth vote. That is, he is the swing vote. Now he sits right at the center of the court ideologically. That will certainly hurt the four-person liberal bloc in many instances, but there are other instances where the chief will ultimately decide with that liberal bloc, as he did in the Obamacare cases several terms ago. And so, yes, the moderate voice will most likely be the chief's, but he is going to use that moderate voice in very select instances, and he's going to use it probably similarly to how he did in the gerrymandering case, and that is he will get a judicially conservative decision, not an ideologically one, but a judicially conservative one where the court will refuse to decide a case, and that's where the liberals will probably side with him. Will it mean that he'll be a moderate in the same vein as Kennedy? Absolutely not, but he will continue to be the swing justice until there is another vacancy on the bench. Two liberal justices, Stephen Breyer and Elena Kagan, have been critical of the conservative justices' decisions to overturn precedent in two recent cases. Why is it a big deal for the court to overturn precedent, and what is the reasoning from the conservatives for doing so? The idea that the court doesn't overturn precedent easily is one that has been ensconced in the court's norms throughout its entire history, and that is precedent needs to have some value. And that value goes all the way back to common law days in England, which is where the seeds of our judicial system began. Precedent is meant to make sure that the law stays stable, that people are treated the same across the country, across jurisdictions, across states, across counties, however you might want to look at it. And so the idea of thinking about overturning precedent really in some sense, calls into question the legitimacy of the bench. There is an opposite view of that, and that is a view that is led by Associate Justice Clarence Thomas. And his argument is that, in fact, if you are an originalist who adheres to the words of the Constitution, precedent should not be binding on you if you believe that that precedent was wrongly decided. This is going to be a fight that will continue on the bench for some time to come, and it's only going to be won when we see who the next Supreme Court appointee is, right? If, in fact, Justice Ginsburg retires or dies before a Democrat is in the White House and we get another conservative on the bench, I think you will see a good number of precedents overturned. But that will not necessarily reflect well on the bench. Chief Justice Rehnquist spent much of his career wanting to overturn a key precedent on the U.S. Supreme Court, Miranda versus Arizona, which says that you have the right to due process and for the police not to interrogate you in ways that would coerce confessions out of you. He had the chance in the early 2000s to overturn that precedent, and he did not do so. He wrote an opinion that said, I fundamentally believe that this precedent and most precedents should be upheld. So as I said, this is an argument that will continue on the bench for some time. It'll be interesting to see whether or not Justices Breyer and Kagan continue to convince their colleagues to uphold existing precedents. 
President Trump campaigned on a promise to place justices on the court who will overturn Roe v. Wade. How has the court, with two of Trump's picks, decided on cases involving abortion so far? And is there any indication when or if they will overturn Roe? So I'll take the second question first. I think the justices probably do not want to touch the overturning of Roe with a 100-foot pole. I think it is such an ideologically hot-button issue that it would really be a problem politically and ideologically for the court if and when it ultimately takes up this issue. But in terms of what the court has done since Justices Gorsuch and Kavanaugh have been on the bench, this term the court specifically upheld an Indiana law but only did so partially. It did suggest that if there are fetal remains after an abortion, that they would need to be buried or cremated, which is sort of the movement toward suggesting that a fetus is life that must be protected. On the other hand, the court did not take up the portion of the Indiana law that banned abortions based on the sex, race, or disability of a fetus. Thus, that portion of the Indiana law still stands. And so the court has gone in both directions, if you will, sort of a more conservative decision in terms of fetal life, although it never got to that specific question. On the other hand, upholding still people's rights to have an abortion. So the bottom line is the court has not moved yet in any fundamental way on abortion, but the jury is still out, no pun intended, that it may do so in the near future. Are the Democratic candidates for president, at least as far as you are seeing, addressing any issues involving the Supreme Court? They haven't yet, um, although I suspect that they will, right? The conventional wisdom is that the U.S. Supreme Court is not um, usually a campaign issue. Al Gore tried to make it a campaign issue in 2000, um, obviously not successfully. I think this time around, especially with your last question about Roe versus Wade, it is highly possible that the Democratic nominees, and as we winnow that field down to the top few and then ultimately to the Democratic nominee, will continue to pound away at this idea of the Supreme Court, probably bring back up the Merrick Garland issue where President Obama did not get his appointee to the bench. And ultimately, I do believe that they will try to make it as strong an issue as humanly possible. Will it have much of an effect? Time will tell. What do you think is in store for the future of the court if the partisan battles continue? I think the biggest thing is that the court might ultimately begin to lose legitimacy, and that is Chief Justice Roberts' biggest fear. He wants the court to remain a highly legitimate institution. He wants it to stay above the fray of politics. He doesn't want the low public opinion numbers that Congress and recent presidents have had. And so if the court continues to have these battles and continues to bicker in partisan ways that most chiefs and most associate justices hope it never will, it will absolutely harm the court's legitimacy. That will be the biggest effect. There's been talk about imposing term limits on Supreme Court justices and also some discussion, too, about possibly adding additional justices. Do you think these kind of proposals will go anywhere? I really don't. I mean, because the only way that any of those proposals go anywhere is to have a constitutional amendment to Article 3. And I don't believe that anybody today wants to open up the Constitution for amending. Um, It is a very difficult process. It's a very fraught process. And I suspect that none of these proposals will go anywhere. I think they sound good on the campaign trail. I think someone like uh, Mayor Pete Buttigieg have proposed it. But I don't see them going anywhere anytime soon. Members of Congress have no incentive to propose these pieces of legislation unless maybe they think it will help them win re-election at some point in their near future. 
but I think that despite the unhappiness that folks have with the U.S. Supreme Court, by and large, people believe in it as an institution and believe that it is a very legitimate institution. And so I think that we will not see those sorts of reforms anytime in the near future. Timothy Johnson is the Moore's Alumni Distinguished Professor of Political Science and Law at the University of Minnesota. Professor Johnson, thanks again for joining us on Dialogue Minnesota. It's always a pleasure. Thanks very much. Dialogue Minnesota. Conversations about the issues that matter to you. Coming up next week, an analysis of the first Democratic presidential candidate debates. I'm Jim Dubois. Thanks for listening. See you next time.